You're listening to a Times Higher Education podcast. Hello and welcome to the Times Higher Education podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Custer. To mark International Women's Day, we focus this episode on that rarest of creatures, the female leader in higher education. Indeed, according to the most recent American Council on Education's American College President study, Women remain outnumbered by men in the college presidency in the United States by a ratio of 2 to 1, with about 33% of presidencies currently held by women. Women aspire to the presidency on average 3.3 years later than men, and they're more likely to work a part-time or reduced schedule or postpone a job search or promotion to care for minor dependents. Our guest today is an award-winning cognitive scientist and expert on choking under pressure. She's the author of two books, Choke and How Your Body Knows Its Mind, so we'd be hard-pressed to find a better person to speak with about female leadership in higher education. She is Sian Bylock, the 19th president of Dartmouth and the first woman elected to the position in the institution's 250-year history. I speak with Sian about performing under pressure, how to handle failure, and dealing with anxiety on the job. She gives some very helpful advice on how to deal with imposter syndrome and shares her personal experience of female leadership that started off working in the provost's office at the University of Chicago and then serving as president of Barnard College at Columbia University before moving to Dartmouth in 2023. I also took the opportunity to ask Sion about Dartmouth's recent decision to start using standardized testing in their admissions process again. And just on a personal note, this will be my last episode as host of the Campus Podcast. I'm handing the mic over to my very talented colleagues, Eliza Compton and Miranda Prynne. So thank you so much for listening over the years, and it's been an honor and privilege to get to put together these shows for you. But don't worry, you'll probably hear me popping up over on Inside Higher Ed's podcast very soon. On with the show. Sian, welcome to the Times Higher Education Podcast. It's great to have you here today. Oh, happy to be here. Um, I wanted to get started before we move on to uh, talking about your experience as a female leader as the first president at Dartmouth. um, I wanted to talk a little bit about your academic background and your expertise in the psychology of choking under pressure and failing in high pressure environments. Um, And I wanted to ask if the experience of failure for women in leadership is is distinctive in what you've seen in your research. Yeah, it's a really interesting question. I think people, all people fail. It's not something that just women do. Um, But certainly one can feel pressure because of being the only or being the first female, for example. Um, But what I think is really interesting is that oftentimes things like imposter syndrome, so feeling like you don't belong, is talked about as something that women have. But everyone has imposter syndrome. There's not one CEO, man, woman, any race or religion that hasn't had imposter syndrome. Hmm. And you've you've written about imposter syndrome and how it can be actually leveraged to be a, a positive learning experience, kind of discovering something new about yourself. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, I mean, I actually think imposter syndrome gets a bad rap. Um, it's not fun to feel uncomfortable and to question your own abilities. And I think we all do that to a certain extent. But what I do think it allows us to do is understand Uh, that we need feedback from the environment around us to get uh, to ask questions of experts of others to get people's perceptions. And I, I worry that if a leader doesn't have any doubt about their ability to lead, that they're not bringing in other voices to challenge them and to really be able to push forward. And I'm a big believer that 
the best outcomes come when you have people with different views, different life experiences, who feel like they can belong, be at a table, and push at each other. Mm. So imposter syndrome is kind of like that little voice in your head that gives you just enough doubt to go out and, and seek different perspectives to make better decisions. Yeah, and that's how I would look at it. And of course, like, we know sometimes that voice can get carried away. We can ruminate extensively. It can impact our ability to want to do challenging things. And um, as a cognitive scientist and in my book, Choke, and how the body knows its mind, and my TED Talk, I talk a lot about some of the tools we can use to help rein that voice in our head in. Can you just remind us of what some of those tools are for anyone who hasn't read your books or seen your TED Talk? Yeah, well, first of all, one is to understand that um, we all worry in these situations. And oftentimes, we are spotlighting and paying way more attention to ourselves than other people are. Um, so there's a really great study that was conducted at, at a university where they had students come in in the front of a class wearing really embarrassing T-shirts and come in the class and leave. And they asked the students how likely some the people in the class would remember a few weeks later that they did this. And they also asked the people in the class. And it turned out everyone who came in wearing the embarrassing t-shirt was convinced that everyone else would remember it exactly. And it turns out that most people weren't paying a lot of attention. And so psychologists talk about this as spotlighting. Like we're paying a lot more attention to ourselves than other people are. And so when we ruminate that we said that horrible thing or, you know, something embarrassing in a meeting or with friends, like how many times have you kind of recounted that to a friend and they're like, I don't even remember that. Like everyone's paying attention to themselves. So even just knowing that you tend to spotlight, that we tend to do this can help take a little bit of the pressure off. Mm, definitely. Um, I'm also like some of the things I'm I employ, I'm a big fan of power worrying where like I can worry, I'll write about it for 10 minutes and then just ask myself to stop and go on to something else. I think sometimes giving ourselves that ability um, to have that time, but then to, to just have a cutoff, right, um, can, can be helpful. Right. So power worrying, you just kind of allow yourself to indulge in that for 10 minutes and get it out and then move on. Yeah. I like to journal about it or write about it. Um, I, you know, there's lots of techniques out there and others is really to think about um, if, if you had a, a bad situation or something that that you experienced as a failure to, to think about it in non-emotional terms, like rather than how embarrassed you were or how other people felt, like what did you do wrong and what are you going to change the next time? And athletes use this as a reframing technique, and um, that's been shown to be very helpful. Um, those are just a couple of the examples. And of course, I'm a big fan of taking a break, getting out in nature, something I've really been using at Dartmouth, going off on a run in the woods, um, I think helps my um, well-being a lot. Mm, probably a bit easier to do in New Hampshire than it was in New York. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> um, I wanted to ask just about your own personal experience and your ascent to leadership within higher education. It's a path that many women in higher education have not done. Uh, and I just wanted to hear, tell us a little bit about what your experience has been as, as a female leader um, within an environment where, where there aren't many female leaders. Yeah. Um, you know, I never actually thought about a career in higher education leadership. I was faculty member running a big lab. I loved the teaching that came both in the classroom but also working with graduate students and postdocs. And I realized for me, the most excitement I have is when other people have really great ideas that I can help push forward. 
and I experienced that with students in my class or with graduate students and postdocs who had these amazing ideas that expanded my thinking and that I could help push forward. And um, that's what I do as a leader. I get to help push forward the amazing ideas of our faculty and students. Um, and, and that's what excites me most about what I do. But going back to the journey in the path, um, I was at the University of Chicago and I was elected to the faculty senate and then became part of a smaller group that met with the president and provost. Um, I was the only woman on the group. I was younger. Um, I was pregnant at the time. And it sort of dawned on me that there was a whole institution around me. I kind of kept my head down getting tenure and working on my lab. And I voiced my opinions at that table. And Bob Zimmer, who was president at the University of Chicago, at the end of the year, we had lunch and he started saying, like, have you ever thought about doing something in administration? And it perked my attention. Um, it, it piqued my interest. And um, pretty soon after that, I started working in the provost's office. So it was that allyship, maybe just that little nudge that you needed from President Zimmer to think about it? Yeah, and I mean, then he was really supportive of it and pushed. So it was um, it was not just advocacy. I mean, I think it was really being behind. Um, you know, I always say he pulled me out of the faculty. Like, it was having someone who was behind me. And I think that has to, for women who are aspiring, this is men and women have to do this. It can't, it's not just women pulling up women. Men need to pull up, you know, bright um, folks who, who might, be interested and, and have the aptitude. And I stuck my foot in. I was working, you know, only part time in the provost office. And I realized, like, this was an extension of my lab, like getting to help people with great ideas, push them forward in a systematic way, like, what could be better? And so that that kind of made me fall in love with the idea of, of being able to do this. And I will say that I actually think it's really important to have faculty running higher education institutions, and um, it is a unique environment, and it is, in my opinion, about pulling the best and brightest of the faculty to be able to further advance what they're doing. Hmm. Have you, I'm interested in that, because there is that tension between the faculty and the administrators, and people who often do go into those leadership roles at institutions are immediately branded a traitor the day that they <laughs> enter the provost's office after leaving the Senate. Uh, have you have you faced any of those tensions and how have you dealt with those? Yeah, I mean, I really like it's about talking and working with people and being out there. And um, I don't think we do a good job generally as universities as in developing leaders from the faculty. Um, you know, if you're at a company, there's leadership programs. People are thinking about next steps. I think generally as institute, higher ed institutions, we haven't done a great job of developing leaders. And so it's something I'm focused on at Dartmouth. Um, and I think we could do more because the faculty perspective is so important in these leadership roles. And, you know, we are in, at Dartmouth, we are focused on academic excellence. Like our mission is to do the best teaching and research and to develop the broadest swath of leaders who will go out and change the world. The faculty are central to that. So having faculty as leaders makes sense to me. Mm. Some of the approaches that you take to leadership, um, that uh, collaborative approach and finding ideas and really pushing them forward and other people, those sound quite mm, 
stereotypical of female leadership? Would you agree with that? <laughs> and and do you think that that's fair to say that women have a discreet approach to leadership? I do think there's research showing that women tend to approach leadership issues around collaboration and consensus building um, at a higher rate. But of course, you know, there's individual differences here. Um, I think it comes from being a faculty member and and pushing to have my work, you know, you seek feedback through peer review, through people really coming at your your work with questions and criticism. And I think there's a difference between seeking input and collaboration and then having to it's it's not a democracy, right? Not everyone has to agree agree with the, every decision I make, and and that's the hardest part is that you're going to make decisions after getting all this information. And I tend to go ask people and seek information from my toughest critics, but then I have to be okay with the fact that I'm going to make decisions where not everyone agrees with me, and that's hard. Hmm. Hmm. And so I think there's a difference between collaboration and trying to build consensus and then being, as a leader, able to say, okay, I think this is the best decision. I'm pulling the trigger, even though I know not everyone is going to agree with me. That is different than saying, okay, everyone has to get on the same page before we move forward, which I think is oftentimes one of the reasons why higher education can be slow to change. Sure, sure. Um, I, I wanted to go back just to uh, my, my first question, which was about um, female leaders and if they are kind of like allowed to fail in the same way that maybe their male counterparts are allowed to fail. And one of the most obvious and recent examples of female leaders failing would be the three presidents who were brought forward and interviewed by the House Education and Workforce Committee, Claudine Gay at Harvard, Liz McGill at Penn, and Sally Kornbluth at uh, MIT. Was it a coincidence that it was three women who were brought forward to be interviewed? You know, I can't comment on that specifically. I can say that, of course, like it's hard to ignore the fact that it was three women there. Um, you know, for me, I'm really focused on on what we're doing on Dartmouth's campus, really creating open spaces for dialogue, but being clear that we are a community focused on principles of respect trust, listening, learning, um, and being able to do that the best I can. Hmm, hmm. Going back to my first question then in terms of women being able to, to fail, is, that, is it different for women than it is for men? Look, I think there's data showing that there are different perceptions of how women operate in leadership roles, um, on what success looks like, and um, I, I, I'm aware of that as I go about and do my job. Um, again, I think the most powerful thing for any leader is to think about what your North Star is, like what you stand for, what the institution stands for, and be okay that not everyone is gonna agree with what you do. Um, I, I appreciate that you are a scientist, Sian, and I'm kind of asking you questions about <laughs> perception and kind of your, your feel of things, so I appreciate um you making an effort to answer those questions. Um, I did just want to ask about um, some of the missions and some of the aims that you've set out uh, in your first tenure there at Dartmouth. And you've really prioritized addressing housing insecurity, for example, on campus. Um, you've appointed a chief health and wellness officer to really look at student mental health. Do you want to tell us a little bit about um, how you are approaching the job? 
Yeah, I mean, Dartmouth is an amazing university. We have uh, an incredible um, world-class focus on undergraduates across the arts and sciences, and then you bring in one of the business school, our Tuck School of Business is a top-ranked business school. We have our Geisel School of Medicine. We have our School of Engineering. We have our graduate school. And together, all of this um, leads to a really amazing R1 institution with this tight-knit feel. And to me, what that signals is an opportunity to push across boundaries. So Dartmouth, for example, um, came up uh, one of our researchers in, in our medical school came up actually with um, the mechanism to stabilize proteins for the plug-in of the mRNA vaccine. Another one of our researchers came up with the technology for camera for the phones on our cameras and so many others. And so the question is, how do we continue to spur all of those innovations on? Um, and continue to educate the next generation of leaders who will go on and spur innovations on. Um, and I think we need some baseline conditions to be able to do that. One, I think we have to focus on the health and wellness of our community. I don't see mental health and wellness as sitting next to academic excellence. I see it as a precursor, which is why I've been really focused on that. It's why I'm appointing a chief health and wellness officer at the presidential cabinet to focus on this for students across our undergraduate and graduate programs, our faculty and staff. It's also why we're really focusing on dialogue across differences. Um, our faculty in Jewish and Middle Eastern studies were actually, I think, so amazing in that they got together and had difficult panel discussions after the October 7th attacks about what was happening in the Middle East and opened up, in my mind, the permission to talk across difference in a civil way. I think health and wellness, dialogue across difference, these are necessary conditions to do the kind of innovative, impactful work we want to do, because it means people from different backgrounds with different ideas are talking together. And so those are two things that I've really pushed as precursors to where I think Dartmouth needs to go in terms of innovating and showing its impact in the world. Hmm. And just one final question while I've got you here, Sion. Um, it was recently announced that Darth Dartmouth was going to re-require standardized testing after being test optional for, I believe, four years as a result of a decision during COVID to, to stop requiring tests. Um, but you've also said that you're going to take a slightly nuanced approach to it in the sense that you are going to be looking at standardized test scores within the context of other test scores from students' peers within their high schools. Can you tell us a little bit more about kind of how you're taking a different approach now? Yeah, and again, I think this comes back to our faculty. Um, we had gone test optional and paused during the pandemic and had moved to, because students couldn't take the test, um, we'd moved to a test recommended and we realized that we needed to decide what we were doing next. And so we asked our experts in educational economics and sociology to look at our data. And we also looked at a large study that had come out this summer by Ross Chetty at, at Harvard um, on IV Plus institutions. And again, it goes back to following data-driven strategies to understand what's best for our community. And what we found was that 
first of all, the standardized tests were an important predictor of success at Dartmouth, that that was true for both lower and higher income students. But most interestingly, oftentimes lower income students were withholding their scores because they didn't think they were up to the mean that was published about Dartmouth, when in fact giving those scores would have been helpful because we're looking for the best and brightest within their environment, those who shine. And we understand that if you get a 1400 on a test at a school where the mean is a 900, that tells us something really important about your ability to succeed. And so we're always looking to bring the broadest swath of leaders to campus who will go out and then uh, have an impact in the world. And we believe that actually looking at tests in this way is one of many factors in how students um, how we're considering at Dartmouth will actually help us identify students from schools that we would sometimes miss. And um, again, it's following the data. It's following um, our data, data from others um, about our our population at these Ivy Plus institutions and working to find the best measures that will give us input. Um, And another thing I'll just mention is that the other measures that we have at our disposal have been shown to have um, often be influenced by a student's economic background, whether it's letters of rec or the activities they can put on on their CV. And I don't think it's counterintuitive to think that the tests in some way would be helpful in finding students from less advantaged backgrounds. But I think the data are very clear on that, and it will be helpful to our admissions folks at Dartmouth. Hmm. I wonder if um, this is also set within the context of the affirmative action ruling last year in terms of perhaps making it slightly more difficult for institutions to be able to diversify their student groups, or is this is this totally different in your mind in terms of how Dartmouth is thinking about admissions? Well, first of all, Dartmouth is committed to following the law. Um, we also believe know that people can have different ideas about whether the affirmative action ruling was the right one or not, and that's okay. That's Those are okay to hold those different ideas on our campus. But we do believe that having diversity is important for what we do, diverse ideologies, different viewpoints, which come from different lived experiences, and we're looking for the tools to be able to go and get the best and brightest students regardless of their economic background. And we believe that this will be another tool that can help us. Hmm. Sian, thank you so much for your time today. It's been a real pleasure to speak with you. Oh, thank you. You're listening to a Times Higher Education podcast.